right, Aftershocks, Tremors, Matt and Chris, we're back here with you guys for another discussion episode where we talk all things music business. And today on this episode, we're pleased to have with us a veteran in the business who's had a, a great, you know, great success both on stage and behind the scenes in the studio. These days, he's really well known for being one of Jerry Cantrell's main studio hands. And we'd like to welcome to the show Grammy nominated engineer, Mr. Paul Fig is with us. What's up, Paul? Thanks for coming on. How are you? Thanks for that introduction. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on, too. Absolutely, man. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on. Um, you know, Paul, just to get things kicking off here, you know, when I was, um, you know, made aware of your extensive studio resume, obviously very impressive, and we're going to get to talking about a lot of the work you've done over the years. But I was just as excited to talk to you, too, about your previous career as a touring musician. Uh, a lot of 90s metal fans would remember that you were one of the guitarists for a great band out of L.A. back in the 90s and uh, early 2000s called Amen. Uh, band that was really, you know, a highly revered band among a lot of the metal fans and journalists, especially. I mean, you guys obviously were, you know, one of the Ross Robinson bands at that time on his label. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, and Amen just always fascinated me. Just, to, you know, we'll start talking about Amen before, you know, to kick things off here, because like I mentioned, you guys were really well respected in the metal press. But for some reason, it didn't necessarily translate into a huge following here in the States. I know you guys did really well overseas, um, but, you know, that self-titled record on Roadrunner and the third album, We Have Come For Your Parents, man, those are just great records, both on major labels. You know, the only thing I could think of of why you guys never really took off like I thought you should have was because you guys were really such a unique band that I think probably the labels didn't even know what to do with you at that time because it was really – you know, you guys weren't like those other Ross Robinson bands, like Limp Bizkit and Corn. I mean, you guys were pretty much the antithesis to that. I mean, so what, I mean, why do you think, just talk a little bit about the Amen days. Let's start with that. I mean, why do you think the band was never really able to really break through here in the States the way that I think many people thought the band should have really? Well, okay. So, you know, I joined the band in 94 mm -hmm. and, you know, we went through a pile of drummers, but, you know, it's like, the LA scene back then, you know, the scene was dwindling and, uh, you know, corn was playing a lot and, you know, it's like, gosh, you know, they're so heavy. But, you know, when I joined Amen, it was like, it was a totally different type of angle. The energy was way more blistering and like in your face rather than like, mm -hmm. kind of like this, uh, you know, more hip hop or new metal. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was really hard for us to find shows. So, uh, you know, we played with all sorts of weird bands, but we played all these like, you know, little dives and, you know, I don't know if anybody heard of the Slave record. The, the first record, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, you know, uh, yeah. the self-tile, well, not save, it was the first record Casey put out through Ton mm -hmm. Records. And uh, I think Ross was involved in that one as well. Um, okay. But that is just really, uh, you know, it's, somebody called it dirty biker rock, but it was, you know, just, it was just, really heavy in your face and, and, and you know kind of punk you know mm -hmm. in a way yeah. uh and you know ross was a, a huge friend of casey and uh you know finally when we got you know we found shannon larkin and he stepped in uh things really started to happen and uh you know sunny joined and then after lynn straight passed we, you know we got tumor and then you know mm -hmm. we already signed the deal and we were already you know about to hit the road but yeah it was just tough to find our our audience because the people really thought our angle was refreshing it was uh you know mm -hmm. just a lot of high energy kind of like you know just think stooges but with lots more distortion right yeah, yeah no you guys would definitely had like definitely like a punk sort of a hardcore punk type of a vibe to you and like i said yeah i mean and you were saying at that point you know it was really all the hip-hop influences and you guys definitely stood out but like i said yeah it was definitely i guess difficult to really kind of you know get that you know fan base because like you said you were so in your face and, and different you weren't radio friendly like those other bands were not at well. all yeah so yeah. you know the music is one thing and then seeing the band live made the record sound boring so mm. if you got to see it live you most likely became a fan or you hated mm. it so, yeah uh, right <laughs> <laughs> well i know it's true and the first time i did see you guys live that's really i mean i had the records but it was really when i saw you guys live i saw you at the tattoo the earth uh festival that that tour um out there in in um in san bernardino that was just such a, a super hot day and i remember oh my you, god right? it was brutal and i remember <laughs> you guys you guys came on to be you were really the first band to get people moving because it was so hot and so whatever but when yeah. you guys came out there 
things started picking up after that. You know what I mean? It was, you guys really definitely got that show kicking off. I mean, talk, you know, that tour, it's funny because we're going to be uh, interviewing Scott Olderman uh, tomorrow uh, about that tour. Talk a little bit about the experience in that crazy too. Cause I remember Shannon Lark, I think I remember reading him doing an interview. He was saying that it was the most debaucherous tour that he'd ever been a part of up until that time. And he obviously is, you know, played with everybody, Shannon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I remember that show vividly. Uh, it was mm. the hottest day. And, you know, everybody on that side stage got to, you know, we were cycling around until we got to headline that side stage. And that night mm. in San Bernardino was like the last night or the second to last night uh, of Tattoo the Earth. And it was just so brutally hot. Like we were just yeah. Like in our like our broken down bus with the air conditioner barely working, and everybody who, <laughs> you know, we knew who were on the list were like trying to escape the heat and go, coming onto the bus, and we're like they were just bringing the heat with them. We're like no more people, <laughs> and uh, you know we're just laying around in our underwear, just like you know trying to reserve our energy for the show. And I think we went on like at six, and uh, mm -hmm. you know right before you know Slayer was going to do their thing across the way, and. Uh, mm -hmm. It was just so hot. And I remember, you know, all these water bottles, like, you know, were flying up in the air. And, you know, one landed mm -hmm. right in my amp and took my tubes out. My guitar tech is like, you know, what do I do? I'm like, well, go get the spare tubes. But, uh, <laughs> you know, just silliness. But uh, that was a great show. Yeah. Great show. Sure. Yeah. No question. Well, well, Paul, do you think that part of the deal with Amen not getting as far as you probably, I'm sure you wanted it to go, was just the fact that that was Roadrunner at their money spending most, and they just didn't have enough money to spend or to throw around. I mean, they obviously had huge, huge bands, whether it was Sepultura or Soulfly or or Slipknot or yeah. you know. But then they even had you know even even the smaller bands were still doing pretty well, the Spine Shanks of the world and whatnot. All of that happened all at one time, and that's right when you came out. There just wasn't enough money to put around to to help a band like yours get out there. I, I, I don't buy that for two seconds because, okay. you know, we we left Roadrunner because, you know, there were, you know, there was a, a situation where they, you know, they there were some business decisions made and they didn't like it. And, okay. you know, so uh, they didn't want to pay tour support to get us to Europe. It was like going to be a machine head slipknot tour all over UK and Ireland and they didn't want to do it. So, you know, they breached their contract. We were able to get out. Virgin picked us up. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that was for, you know, they picked up our next record and that was, uh, we've, we come for your parents and they spent $2 million marketing that record. Wow. So mm -hmm. I don't believe that it was, there was, wasn't enough money. It was, mm -hmm. you know, you can't shove that kind of abrasive, material at everybody and expect them to sure. love it there has to be something mm -hmm. to latch on to but you know i was in it just to you know hey as long as i can get to destroy my guitar i'm having a blast <laughs> right <laughs> no question there was no way man. we were going to recoup that recoup that that was insane it was like we were you know we were part of nancy berry's special projects uh we were in a tour bus she didn't want us in a van and uh you know it's you know we toured as much as we could in the states and as soon as we got to europe it's like you know that was just the most fun because you know we were playing festivals and there there were kids that got it like they were freaking right. out that you know when we'd show up so that was a cool thing but uh yeah you know you spend two million dollars on a marketing campaign you sell thirty-five thousand records worldwide it's not a success right <laughs> Come on, America! Come on, America! 
<laughs> right. No question, man. So, yeah. so Paula, at what point and, and what was it that led you from being in the band to being behind the scenes and becoming an engineer? Was it just a love for it when you were doing it or? Well, you know, so when I first met Casey, he was straight edge. Okay. And he was a super cool dude to hang out. He turned me on to so much music and, uh, and you know, and you know, we rehearsed a lot. I I dug where he was coming from. I'd go to work. I had a groovy day job, and you know, show up at rehearsal, and he'd write like you know a couple more jams, and we'd learn those and throw those on the. We had this giant like dry erase board, and just had we just go through all these 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 songs, you know, throughout the week, and we had something to do. And then like, hey, we've got to show at the barn, or you know, we're gonna open up for you know Deftones, you know, wherever. Or we're going to do this show down here. And, you know, it's like, all right, cool. And, uh, you know, we we're always prepared for something. Uh, you know, <laughs> then, then we get down to, you know, we're trying to record the second record for Virgin, the follow-up to We've Come for Your Parents. And, you know, the 9-11 just happened, right? Mm -hmm. So the world is kind of like getting crazy. Uh, and then uh, Virgin or EMI, purchased uh you know this deal with uh, mariah carey for like 22 million non-recoupable and okay. you know casey was like you know kind of you know he, he's kind of you know he's drinking he's chomping on pills he's doing all you know he's just kind of going down his own path and uh kind of alienating the band and you know so we're working our asses off trying to you know get this last record recorded at sound city and ross and mike frazier the engineer uh had to put the band on hold for two weeks they needed to go back and remix a record for i think it was called vex red i don't know if you know the, that band so know. anyways uh so i was like casey get out of town go visit your folks relax step away from this right like you need it and anyway so you know all of a sudden he's you know he's hammering the studio manager like you know hey well if i want to stay here and record while they're gone you know can i get a deal and i was like don't do it Right. <laughs> I'm like, just go away. <laughs> and, you know, he just wouldn't. So we had this big powwow and he basically just showed his cards that it was mostly only about him from then on out. Mm. And we were just like, you know, the coattail riders trying to, you know, soak up, you know, the massive amounts of money we weren't making. So, you know, <laughs> so, you know, I was like, well, you know what? Then I see where this is going and I don't need to be part of this anymore. It's like I was in the band for, seven years prior to that point and you know uh i'm gonna step away and you know so the next day i call up the studio manager and i'm like you know hey so you know i've been talking with mike terry was the assistant on our session i've been talking with mike terry about you know maybe doing interning uh i'd love to come down to the studio and, and work do i need to bring down a resume and she says you're hired you can start when they leave <laughs> so <laughs> that was shivan nice. o'brien over at sound city and so I waited, you know, and it's, I, it, you know, I don't know if you ever did something for seven years, every single day of your life, you know, like every single day for seven years, then all of a sudden let it go. You know, you do this like free fall and you're like, you, yeah. you kind of like take a personal inventory of what, what's happening in your life. What, you know, and just, you know, look at all the pieces falling around and, and kind of, you know, figure out what you're going to do. So I, you know, I just, you know, I made the right decision and, you know, uh, it's not like they went on to become, you know, the next Foo Fighters or anything. They just, mm. you know, kind of, you know, they were, you know, imploded. And, you know, there were so many people I know that are like, you know, oh, you know, oh, do you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, they're, they were in Amen. I'm like, no, I've lost count after, you know, Rich and, you know, Matt Montgomery. And, you know, right. I don't know who is in the band. So, uh, you know, and I, and I love those guys. It's like Sonny and Larkin. It's like, you know, sharing the stage with those guys and, uh, you know, destroying every night that we could. That was like, you know, the most fun in my life. It was just the most amazing time. And I, I felt like I was really, you know, doing something that I loved. And that's, you know, and, and, and but at the same time, I was still doing that. I'm, you know, every day, you know, I just worked, you know, back to back gigs. And it's like, it's all great music. And it's, you know, I love it every single part of it. I even do it at home. Sure. <laughs> no doubt. Well, well, Paul, you're obvious. You obviously made the right choice because you're getting hired by the biggest of the big. I mean, you're not, you're obviously very good at it. I'll just put it that way. You're, you know, you're not getting 
Slipknot, Stone Sour, Allison Chains, Cantrell, Death Angel. You know, the list is huge and it's all big name bands. You're not getting that if you're not very good at what you do. So yeah. what what was it for you? What what told you that you were good at it? And what tells other people now that you're good at it? Well, you, you know, uh, it's a, you know, I kind of gravitated towards this, you know, like back in Amen, you know, I'd set up the, you know, the recording setup and we, you know, I was, we do the demos and Casey got like this digital recorder and I'm like learning that thing and trying to make sense of that and, you know, doing programming or, or, you know, bouncing stuff from tape or whatever. And uh, so it just kind of made sense. And, you know, being in the studio, there's a hierarchy, like you, you know, the assistant's there to make the engineer look like, a, you know, a genius and the engineer's there to make, you know, the producer look like a genius mm -hmm. and the producer's there to make the band look like, you know, the most amazing thing on the planet. So, uh, you know, it, it's, you, you find your place and, you, you know, you don't speak out of turn, really. You just kind of like sit there and listen and do your job and like really kind of take, uh, you know, stay two steps ahead of what's happening all the time. And uh, it's not just like, hey, I'm an engineer and kick your feet up and like, check me out. It's not like that at all. It's like you're paying attention from the second you step through the door to the second you leave. And then when you're at home, you're thinking about, oh, I could have done this to save time on that. Or this could have been a, a more efficient way to capture this setup. You know, so mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, just having, I guess, like an engineer brain. But, uh, you know, it's, I got, you know, I, I was so lucky. And, you know, it's like, I don't know if you guys realize this. I jumped off the Amen ship, you know, just as I turned 32. And that's okay. a little late to jump into, you know, start at the runner desk at, at, at a recording studio. But mm -hmm. I never took it for granted because I knew there were kids that would kill to get their foot in the door to sit where I was sitting to learn what I was about to learn for the next, you know, six years, you know, uh, either being a runner uh, a sh shadowing the assistant, being an assistant engineer and engineering and just watching all my heroes, you know, do their thing at that studio on that desk. You know, it's mm. just, I heard, you know, 10 different ways to do a drum kit or guitars or, you know, ju just tons of different angles of, you know, to, to use that room in, you know, uh, creative ways. So, uh, you know, and I store all that stuff in my head. So it's, you know, when Nick calls me, you know, that's how I uh, got scooped up out of Sound City. I I got to assist on a session with Nick Rowski Lennox. And he was like, fuck, this guy's kick ass. And then his engineer bailed on him and he was doing Stone Sour at 606. And right. he was mm -hmm. like, dude, how do you feel about coming down to 606 and help me uh, finish this record? And I was like, fuck yeah. Plus, you know, I know half those guys from, you know, Slipknot. Cause that's, you know, all we did was tour with Slipknot back in the early days. Sure. Mm, yeah. No doubt. Well, like you said, we just brought up, you know, uh, sound city studios, obviously <clears throat> infamous place there in, in Van Nuys. Uh, I used to, you know, jam there myself. Great place uh, to play. It's just got such a rich history. Now today, these days you're over at Dave's room there on Lancashire. And, and yeah, correct. Yeah. And you know what's great? I mean, the Valley just has so many great studios. Uncle Studios is another great one that's been there forever. Um, but what's great, what I think is kind of cool these days in terms of now studios is long gone are the days with these massive recording budgets that these, you know, labels are, are just throwing out oh, there. Yeah. They used to, you know, but and it seems like artists these days, I mean, like I said, even big name artists are recording at the same places now where the average musician, you know, records with their fledgling bands and projects. How I mean, talk a little bit about how much that really benefits a place like Dave's Room. The fact that you know there aren't these massive budgets anymore, um, and where now it's common to record, say, you know, Jerry Cantrell's record at the same place, you know, that like I said, just a smaller, you know, average musician record at. I mean, it, it, it's just it's good to know. I think that you know the big boys are recording at sort of the same place that you know the hero where these you know up and coming uh, musicians are recording, and it's their heroes and. You know, I think it's just nothing to me. I just think it's a positive for music, you know, going forward that the lesser known acts are also, you know, a play in these places that also they're willing to then pay a higher price to record at the same place where a major artist does these days. Talk a little bit about that and working at Dave's yeah. room these days. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so I took over Dave's room with my partner, uh, David Spring, and uh, it was, you know, a good friend of mine, Dave Bianco's spot. 
It's like, you know, he saved it from the bulldozers. It was a place that used to be called Mama Joe's. It was in really bad shape. But this place, Mama Joe's, was built as a studio in 1970. And that place competed with A&M and Ocean Way and Cello, which is now East West, like all these giant studios out in Hollywood. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there's pictures of like some, you know, uh, you know uh, Stanley Jordan and George Duke, you know, doing their trio there and you know you know then there's bands like uh uh ambrosia did all their yacht rock stuff Mm. there for years but it's a Mm. it's a great studio like you walk in all the walls are like a foot and a half thick and there's a line of sight to track live which is kind of like the luxury thing right now because bands right now just they'll, they'll track drums they'll track bass they'll track guitars they'll put their vocals on and you know get it mixed and you know then they go out and tour. But this is a spot where you can track live and have like, you know, half your record done in three or four days and then do your overdubs, do your mm-hmm. vocals wherever. And, uh, and you've got a really great sounding, great feeling record instead of building it piece by piece, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense. Sure. Uh, you know, we're, uh, you know, we're a mom and pop situation. So we're really flexible on our rates and we, we're highly competitive. And, uh, you know, because I'm working with Cantrell, it's like, hey, we've got 11 days to do all the guitars. And then we set up and did vocals at his house. But, mm. uh, you know, it's just, you know, budget. It's like, you know, hey, we've got 11 days. Let's do this. You know, that's lightning speed for him because Alice in Chains records take like three to six months to finish. Sure. You know, so <laughs> so eleven days to get all the guitars was mind blowing. And then we set up at his house, and you know, then he, we took our time because that was that was during COVID, and you know, it's like, oh, mm. my throat's funny, or I don't, you know, my nose is runny, and, and and I don't I don't feel so great, and it's like, you know, the allergies. But you know, we're we're mm. being cautious. But yeah, so, uh, you know, hey, if if a Big rock band, you know, Kiss comes into our studio too. Paul Stanley did his Soul Station thing at our studio. And, uh, you know, but, you know, we've got Shooter Jennings showing up a lot with bringing Mm. bands and it's awesome. And then we also get like, you know, bands that, you know, they just want to do a cool record and they either find me or Sprang and, uh, you know, we work out a deal and, you know, hey, come on in, let's record. Mm -hmm. And it's that easy. You know, yeah. so, you know, a lot of bands, it's like, you know, hey, uh, you know, this isn't just a garage with a couple of mics and, you know, uh, and a built in engineer. This is a it's a space and you have to hire everybody. You don't have a producer, then you don't have a producer. You, you have an engineer because you need one. So mm-hmm. you can't just show up and like, you know, hey, I've got 40 minutes worth of music I need to record. So you know, I think I can get my album done in two hours. It's like it doesn't work that way because right. somebody's going to say, hey, you're out of tune. And, you know, it. it eventually somebody's gonna go hey i can't hear something in my headphones and that always takes time but uh you know it's a little unrealistic but uh you know it can't it can be done it's not going to mm-hmm. sound great <laughs> <laughs> yeah sure right <laughs> <laughs> absolutely man well you know you brought up obviously a, a big name just a second ago nick Raskulinix. um obviously you're you've been working alongside him on just a, a numerous you know, iconic records over the years. Um, in your opinion, what what is it about Nick that just makes him really just one of the top? I mean, few producers really in in rock and metal in in the world at this point. I mean, he's he's as big as there is right now, and in, in, you know, in, in in music. What is it about him? What have you really, I guess, you know, have have been able to learn or pick apart from him over the years that's really helped you flourish? Not only as an engineer, but now also as a producer. Yeah. Well, one. And, you know, and he kind of shows it. He's a huge music fan. Like, just, mm-hmm. he's, like, the biggest music fan. Like, he loves music. And his favorite, you know, it's, like, Rush, Rat. Like, Rat is his Desert Island band. Can you hear oh, really? that? <laughs> Can you hear that noise? I did hear that a little noise. bit. Yeah, it's okay. okay. Here, let yeah. me. It's all right. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. So, I'm having an addition. And these guys are, you know, they show up when they want to show up. And it's going to start in November. So uh, anyways, yeah, so one, he is, you know, he's this, just the biggest music fan and he loves music and he wants, you know, and he's just a hilarious guy and he's a great hang. And like when you, when you meet him and he's a giant guy too, 
when you meet him and he starts talking to you, you're like, you're like, all right, I trust this guy. Cause he made, mm -hmm. well, one, you can hear it in his voice. You can hear the passion coming out and, and he's done it all. Like he's heard it and seen it all. And he's, and he has a vision for your music. So, uh, you know, that's where, you know, like when he got to do that rush record, which is like, mm -hmm. you know, I remember he had an interview. He's like, dude, my dream band to produce would be rush. And then next thing you know, no doubt, like next, the year after that interview, he gets a call from rush and <laughs> he, does, he does snakes and arrows and he put he got neil sweating in the studio and like pushing and like you know throwing ideas at him like he's super creative also by the way and he's just throwing ideas at him i wasn't there i just heard these stories and he's getting him to sweat and uh you know i guess you know uh they do a take and then uh he goes out there talks to neil's like i'm gonna have to have you do that again he comes back in the studio and getty's laughing he's like What's so funny is like nobody's ever told Neil to do it again. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, nice. but you know, because Nick wants the bar super high, period. Right. You know, it's like you got to get over that bar. It's like, you know, hey, yeah, it could be if you do it here, he can get it there, but he wants you to perform it there. So I get it. And, uh, you know, he's super talented, like just sitting, you know, sitting there and listening and really paying attention to each, you know, chord you know every note every you know hit every whatever it is he's he's paying attention and he has a vision for every single piece of it there's got to be a, a voice that sort of once in a while creeps into you that says to yourself i think it would be better if maybe it was done this way right is nick the yeah. kind of guy who's sort of you know set in his laurels where you know he, he it's just his way the highway or does he you know take advice from you know other engineers like yourself who walk you know alongside oh him? no yeah so you know we're both sound city guys so mm -hmm. we both came up at sound city we're both kind of we're familiar with the process and we're you know and i learned a lot from him so i you know i know what he wants and i know mm -hmm. how how he'll want to get it but if i see a way like you know hey we're having an issue with this uh we should we should try to do this and, you know, he's totally open-minded, but, you know, sometimes an artist is like, you know, I want my, you know, I, I need this to happen. And it's like, okay, well, then we'll do it that way. You know, uh, mm -hmm. like, you know, like when we're doing Deftones and Stefan wanted to play through his guitar rig and, you know, Nick and I are just kind of looking at each other like, well, okay, so you going to send his guitar signal into his computer. That is going to, uh, that is going to, uh, you know, be offset by the samples it takes to convert. Then it's going to spit out, and that takes samples to convert. And then the phase alignment with what he's splitting off to the real amps is going to be a little different. So that was kind of like, it's like, okay, well, this isn't optimal for us, but we'll make it work because Stefan has a vision for his guitar sound, and he wants it to be this way. So, you know, we we did it, and we worked around it, and we it was a little tough, but, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, as soon as, as, soon as Stefan got out on the floor, he played it once, and it was pretty flawless and we're nick and i just looked at each other like okay hey how about one more for safety <laughs> <laughs> so, you know stefan knows what he's doing mm -hmm. Very cool. <laughs> right on man well well paul you know one of the things that i'm always fascinated with is when you work with these artists you come I, i'm assuming this so tell me if i'm wrong mm -hmm. i assume when you work especially with artists like an allison chains when you work with Alice in Chains, there's an expectation from yourself going in on what it's going to sound like. Probably even before you hear the songs, you sort of know what Alice in Chains is. But like the last two records that Alice in Chains did, they they went in some interesting and new and different directions. And I guess my question for you is, as, as an engineer, as a producer, or as a mixer, all three, how much communication and back and forth do you have to have before any recording starts so that everybody understands what you're trying to capture so okay so that first allison chains just to i didn't hear anything until i stepped into the recording studio so that mm -hmm. was you know i'm just like wow I'm, you know nick calls me up i'm out on vacation and he's like dude how do you feel about working on allison chains record and i'm like that sounds amazing when and you know <laughs> so uh you know i didn't hear any music and he doesn't let me hear any music same with like Coheed and Cambria, like pretty much every single band we work with, he's the only one that's working on the demos, listening, doing the arrangements. And then when I step in, that's when I get put to work. And, and you know, we're, it, you know, especially for Alice in Chains, it's like, holy smokes, it's like, you know, like dirt. 
it's like th that's the high watermark for guitar tone and you know it's like and jerry is you know i'm just like holy fuck so uh you know that was that was a that was a trip you know setting up all the amps and getting his sound together before jerry started cutting guitars because you know you know what a terrifying place to be if you're not up to par but you mm -hmm. know Nick and I, we dial up these amps, we get these sounds happening. We, you know, we're, we're checking it out with his Les Paul. We put the rampage on and it's like, fuck, there it is. And, uh, you know, just whatever he's got pickups or that neck or the alder body or whatever it's made out of, uh, you know, just, it has this snap, this bite, this growl, this, you know, through all these different amps, it, it has this particular sound. So, uh, you know, Jerry came in that next day and, put his guitar on and he turned around with big smile and we're like, ah, oh, you know, he loves it, you know, great. <laughs> but, you know, you know, not like I wouldn't have these like moments when I'm going to sleep, you know, during that record going, who the fuck am I? It's like, that's a guitar guy. Why the fuck am I recording him? But anyway, <laughs> right. uh, calm down. Yeah. And, you know, and then, uh, but for the rest, yeah, I don't get to hear the music unless I'm producing it. And that okay. way, and then, then I have a bigger, a, you know, a, a broader picture of what what the palette's going to look like on the record. Like for Cantrell's solo record, you know, we were doing demos and uh, and I'm picking out guitar sounds for different sections with him. And, you know, like, hey, we need something chimey here. Let's use time, like, like let's get like an AC30 type of thing. and Or, you know, let's get like a, you know, JMP, like not full throttle, you know, distorted sound and you know i really mapped out every single song and then when it came time to do the record you know and track it in 11 days uh it was already you know, like most of the work we, we didn't have to you know we didn't have to hunt around and figure out what was going to happen i knew exactly where to go to get these sounds and it happened pretty quick so i i think that's it you know if you have the time to do that it makes your studio time way more efficient sure yeah uh, the other the other contrast to that, I think, would be a guy like Corey Taylor, who comes with a different sound from band to band, you know, and sometimes yeah. even within the band, he comes with different, you know, some of the Stone Sour stuff is different from song to song. So how how do you attack like vocals for a Stone Sour and keep that focus toward what he's going for and not not allow it to get too slipknotty for lack of a better term. Yeah. Well, I think Corey kind of like, you know, filters that out for himself because, because he is okay. writing that stuff. He's writing the lyrics. Uh, you know, it's like, you have, you know, the, the records I worked on, uh, Roy wasn't in the band on the first one on the, you know, uh, the first one I worked on them with, uh, but you know, Roy May Orga came in with songs on, you know, audio secrecy and you know Jim Root and and Josh Rand as well, and so uh, who's and Sean Economacki was still in the band, so I'm not sure how much he was writing, but I know Corey would just roll in and he had an acoustic song, and it would get turned into a rock song. So you know he's definitely bringing it. But yeah, so it, that's kind of the beauty of that band is you know all the songwriters are contributing and they're all making the record. So. The, the one, you know, the one thread that goes through the whole thing is his voice. And, right. you know, I think that's, uh, you know, and, and, and whether it's a mellow song or over the top, I think he steers it clear from Slipknot. In, you know, obviously there's, I don't think there is one acoustic guitar on any Slipknot song. Right, right, no. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. Well, 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 Paul, for you, for somebody that has done basically the big three phases of production, mixing and engineering and producing. Mm -hmm. How do you not end up blurring the lines? Like, you know, my thought is always as a producer, not like now that you've produced music, mm -hmm. you would probably bring some of that knowledge to the engineering when you're doing engineering on the next record, because you sort of know how to work with the musicians a oh, little yeah. more now to no, get absolutely. the boat. So how do you draw the lines or do you not draw the lines and do the people that like, if you're doing an engineering job, does the producer lean on you because they know that you also have the skill as an engineer? You know, you know, it's like having, being able to wear all those hats, I think ultimately helps. Like right now I'm working on a, a project with Jim Scott and, you know, 
he and he's you know he's a legend himself i don't know if you know jim scott uh but uh you know so he doesn't know pro tools right okay. so okay. he's all analog on the desk he's got like way more knees than anybody should have and uh you know and he and he's fantastic at it and then he'll ask me like you know hey can can, can we sort this out or can we do that and it's like yeah sure it's like you know taking like these reels from like 91 and like you know they're they're already transferred and like you know building a click track out of a live performance it's like i can do that but uh you know it's like as a producer and i wear all the hats and when i'm producing a band i'm working with i am the engineer and i am shaping that record from the beginning because i know how i'm going to mix it i know i have a vision from the from the get-go of where i want it to end up so uh you know i i think it all helps it's like uh, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, budgets haven't gotten any bigger, so I can't right. really hire an engineer yet. But uh, mm. it'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, well, Paul, you know, uh, just sticking with the producing, you know, um, topic here. I mean, yeah. what's your approach overall, just in general, I guess, to producing to compare, you know, compared to recording and engineering? For example, like we recently uh, interviewed uh, producer Randy Burns, who was obviously the guy who did all those great 80s thrash death and crossover metal records yeah. with Megadeth and Suicidal. He said that with his approach to producing, he looked at himself more as providing sort of like the canvas for the artist, and the rest was all them. He didn't really suggest changes of much of anything and and it was just it, he was he looked at himself he says more as a resource for the band when they when they choose to use him in that regard but he didn't really try to go in and and change much of what the band was doing for yourself as a producer i mean do you have a similar approach to the way you produce as you know like i said say you do with engineering recording or do you enjoy sort of getting your hands in there and trying to maybe sort of mold a band instead of just going you know along with what they want to do well yeah so my approach, and this is for me, is I want the band to be the best version of them. Mm. You know, it's like their name is the biggest name on the record, not my name. And right. it's like, you know, I don't want to shape their record into something that's not them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my approach is, you know, hey, this is all great. I have some suggestions. They're always suggestions. You know, hey, let's let's shorten this part or, Hey, let's move. This is the chorus like this. What you're calling a verse is the chorus. Let's move that. And let's create, you know, creating an, a, a, an arrangement that makes sense. It's like, you know, if I turn around to the artist, I'm like, what is this section? Oh, I guess, mm. Mm, I guess that would be called. I'm like, well, that's what your listener is going to be wondering. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> let's iron that out now. Mm. So, uh, you know, so you're just making things make sense in musical and, and flow, cor not correctly, but in a manner that like escalates. And so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, I'm working with this band Filth is Eternal from Seattle. And, you know, and the big thing is I don't want them to sound like any of the bands I've recorded. I want them to right. sound like them. And, you mm -hmm. know, the guitar player shows up and he's got like all like, you know, I record all sorts of amps. It's like, you know, Trivium is, you know, all 5150s and, uh, you know, Jerry uses pretty much every amp. Uh, uh, but this guy brought in uh, like the most Mesa boogies I'd ever seen. I'm like, OK, mm. let's let's do this. And, you know, it's mm. it was just kind of bend my ear in a weird way because I'm I'm always like leaning on JMPs and other like high watts and AC30s or or Bogners or something. And, uh, you know, then I'll, I get these, you know, boogies. And I used to have a triple rectifier and amen. And, uh, but, you know, I'm like, okay, let me wrap my head around this. And, you know, and it's definitely a sound and it's thick. And it's like, you know, all right, I'm not going to take that away from you. But hey, let's mm -hmm. add this one over here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's a good way to put it in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, um, well, listen, I want to I definitely talk about some of the records you've worked on, obviously, over the years. Sure. I mean, when I look at your resume, like it's really hard to kind of pick out because there's so many. But one that definitely stands out, obviously, was the second Ghost record. Um, I remember reading an interesting story on that record where I, I know it was recorded in Tennessee. I remember mm -hmm. reading something some to the fact with I remember the band couldn't find a choir to perform on the record i remember I believe because in tennessee the choirs just they weren't down with the satanic lyrics i guess in in the music and thus they had to obviously go back to la and you know where of course la is no problem with that stuff but uh 
what just talking okay, because I know obviously Tobias Forge is a guy who's kind of been known as someone who's been definitely a little bit challenging to work with in the studio. What was just your ex real experience working with him and, and such a unique artist like him and, and the band goes? Yeah, so uh, you know that was a total joy working with that band. I remember uh, we were wrapping up the uh, Devil Put Dinosaurs here with Allison Chains, and we got mm -hmm. the demos, and I was like, "This is great! It's like they're hanging a left on the metal scene, like really hard." Mm -hmm. And right. at the same time, it's like the lyrics are just so satanic; it's almost comical. Mm -hmm. But it, it's like their music was kind of beautiful at the same time. You know, their their first record was a lot more. You know, just it was heavier. And mm -hmm. this one was just a little bit more laid back, a little bit more space, and a lot more keyboards and or organ. And uh, it, I just thought it was a fun and amazing record. You know, uh, when the band showed up, they showed up in shifts, but it was like a democratic, mm -hmm. like production. Like uh, the guitar players were were heavily involved in the guitar sound and get creating the keyboard sounds and and uh, you know and and making sure like parts worked but uh you know and then you know i left when they were doing vocals back to la and you know nick wrapped the record up and uh then and then that is a true story like they get this choir to show up at the studio and mm -hmm. the choir looks at the lyrics and they're like <laughs> i don't want to do my hick voice but you know <laughs> well we can't sing these lyrics and <laughs> so, uh, you know, so they yeah, had to stop and, you know, abort that thing. And, uh, you know, we set up at, uh, at the Glendale, in Glendale called Bridge Recorders. And David Campbell, who, you know, we usually get for our, you know, like Evanescence and uh, Rush, uh, he does like all the string arrangements. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you know David Campbell, that's Beck's dad. Yeah. Oh, okay. Didn't know that. Okay. And wow. He, 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 yeah. Yeah, and uh, he's you know he is amazing, and he's got a, a really unique way of doing his thing. And uh, so yeah, he put together this twenty-eight piece choir, and I showed up, and I opened my laptop like we're doing now, except you mm -hmm. know I've got Nick on Zoom, and Nick's got Tobias on not you know on FaceTime, and Nick's got Tobias on FaceTime in Sweden. So we're going you know from L.A. to Tennessee to wow. Sweden, <laughs> wow. and oh, you know. <laughs> doing this choir and you know weirdly enough i just stumbled on this because this is i, I want to get a plaque for this but this is the score for that session oh wow very cool and this is uh this is what the choir sang four pages long wow oh, wow damn <laughs> it's oh shit it's you know it's just it's pretty impressive, and David Campbell, that's what he does. He does this, oh. and uh, wow, I just need to get Amazing. that in a frame. But, uh, <laughs> nice. Yeah, so, and he did the same thing with Evanescence, so uh, we flew to New okay. York, and, you know, and that's, I really, again, a lot of respect for Amy when she walked up to David, and she pulled, looked at the score, and she's like, you know, you need to watch out for this, and she starts... And she really dove in there and she knew what she was doing and she knew what she was talking about and amended his his uh manuscript paper and i was like wow i'm like she's a badass i'm like all right nice you know, yeah right absolutely yeah you got to get that thing framed absolutely yeah. man. that thing is special <laughs> no <Yeah>. doubt <laughs> there's, no there's doubt. even pen, there's even pencil markings on this oh wow nice. <laughs> That's really and, cool. and, and all the, the lyrics are on there and everything Wow. Yeah. Very yeah. cool, man. That's awesome. Man. Yeah. Nice. That's, that's a good piece there. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. so uh, my next question, this is, uh, this is a band I know not maybe a lot of people uh, know too much about, but I, I was a really big fan of this band out of LA who I, I don't really had a great feature. And then they just kind of disappeared up to uh, just disappeared and went anywhere. It was year long disaster, you know, and that yeah. of course featured Daniel Davies, who's the son of the great Kings guitarist, Dave Davies, Mm -hmm. Obviously, you had Rich Mullins from Calmer to Burn, drummer Brad Hargreaves. He was from Third Eye Blind. They put out two great records. I love the record that you did with them. That was the best one. You know, Black Magic, All Mysteries yeah. Revealed. Um, you know, I know, that, like I said, I know Daniel, he was with Calmer to Burn for a bit, then CKY, but he just kind of fell off the face of the earth. I don't know what happened to him. Talk a bit about working with that band who, like I said, they started out so hot in L.A. when I was there and just... I mean, I, I, you know, it happens. I know it's it's just, you know, yeah. the way the music business works. But, I mean, do you, do you even still talk to Davies? Is he still doing anything musically around oh, LA? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, he, yeah. he's doing great. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I even had friends that played in that band. 
And oh, okay. so I, I go see my friend, Brian Brown, who, you know, after Amen, I joined this band Bluebird. And, mm. and then we, he became a writing partner of mine and we did all sorts of TV and movie music. And we did a bunch of music for Sonic Highways and like 94 pieces of music for that. And, uh, you know, so uh, I actually met Dave, uh, Daniel, at one of our like music meetings, you know, for, with music supervisors. Uh, and I was like, Oh, Hey man, how you doing? He's, you know, he's, you know, got his, you know, after a year long, he kind of like got his shit together and he was composing and doing stuff for TV and movies. And, uh, you know, but I didn't realize, I think, uh, uh, his dad is the, the director, uh, Oh, the John Carpenter, the right? Carpenter. John yeah, and uh, and they did a thing, a soundtrack record, or they did a record of the soundtracks, and then they toured it of oh, wow. from from John's movies, and so he's been doing stuff like that lately, oh, and okay. uh, you know I I, keep, I I chime in on him every now and again, but you know I mix the thing, and then uh, it was pretty synth heavy, it was pretty wild, but you know super cool, like he's a super creative guy. Uh, but that session was pretty fun. Um, it was, and it was quick. I think it was only like two weeks, but, mm-hmm. uh, we, those guys would track live at sound city. So we set up at studio a and mm-hmm. we track live, get the basic tracks together. And, you know, like, you know, classic Nick, he, he had all the demos beforehand, ironed out the arrangements. And then, uh, you know, by the time they got to sound city, when we were all set up, we'd go ahead and track those guys. And then we moved into studio B and, uh, you know, it was, it was just a lot of work. I can't say that it was like a lot of hanging around and partying and chatting. It was just, you know, mm. s- straight to business. You know, it's like we right. weren't there to hang out. Where they were spending a lot of money, and this is kind of when you know uh, the beginning of budgets really disappearing. Like, mm. hey, that one just got cut in half, and that one that just got cut in half got cut in half again. Uh, mm. So you know, uh, you know, we did a great record, and then Nick mixed yeah. it, and you know, they they toured it, and you know. I, you know, I, I don't know why it didn't have more success. I mean, he's, he's highly entertaining to watch and, you know, he's a great guitar player and, you know, great band period. And, uh, you know, so, uh, I hope he does keeps doing stuff because I'd like to hear more. Yeah, sure. Certainly, man. Well, well, Paul, and this is just looking at your resume. So it could very much be not true. It's just the way it's worked out, but it seems like on some level you are kind of a vocal expert. And what I mean by that is all of the artists that you work or most of the artists that you work are very unique vocalists, whether it's Cantrell and Duvall, uh, Mark Sullivan of Stavaker, uh, Corey Taylor, you know, these are all guys that have very unique voices and I can't imagine that anybody could just produce or mix or engineer them. I, I have to imagine that there's something that you hear specifically or you and Nick hear that helps bring out the best of guys that do not have a common voice. So do you think that that's true? And if so, what is it about you that you pick up on vocal nuances? Okay, so I heard part of that. Uh, give me the last last couple of sentences there because that one just <laughs> totally okay. Got no, I I, yeah. I I just I I just think that you you bring out the best on on um, vocals that are not straightforward average vocals. You work with vocalists that are very unique, whether it's Mark Solomon or Duvall and Cantrell, etc. Do you think that there's something about you that you hear or you and Nick hear that, that really blows up uh, vocalists nuances? Well, okay. So, you know, you named, you know, okay. So there's a reason why all those guys are in that list. They're all amazing singers. Like, and they're, and they all have like, different tonalities and like mark solomon it's like you know he's just a self-taught dude that just you know can just his pitch is just on point and he has like a a unique sound and you know i don't want to i don't want to cover that up so i'm going to use the you know a mic that's going to capture that you know and it's all about you know you know mic placement and choice but you know also like 
hey, I'm not going to use that pre that's going to drive that thing to death or really squash them down. Or, I, you know, I want, I want it to be intelligible. And, you know, I don't know if you heard their version of uh, Burn the Witch or the mm-hmm. Sia cover. It, I, I mean, like, I'm just, I'm amazed I'm in the room, you know, recording him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, same with William and, and, and Cantrell. It's like, you know, Nick has a specific, you know, you get to Nick's level and, you know, you buy these really expensive and they're, and they're worth every penny, mic pre's and uh, microphones. And, you know, for Nick, uh, for uh, Will and Jerry on the Alice in Chains stuff, we use a, a Bach 251 and, and that and an SM7 which is, you know, that's like the best $400 you're ever going to spend for a vocal mic. That's very close. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the one now you this have This is there, one right here. Right here, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, uh, uh, yeah, so, uh, but, you know, it, it's the talent those guys bring. And, and, you know, and then it's up to us to, you know, you know, like I can work with Jerry, you know, all day long, but he's got like, you know, he's got about 45 minutes to an hour and a half of usable vocal. So it's up to me to like, all right, Jerry, you're done. Okay. You know, call mm, him okay. on it. I'm like, unless, mm. unless it's like, you know, you know, hey, are you are you doing that scratchy thing on purpose? And then he'll be like, yeah, I'm just trying to put some touch on it. I'm like, oh, okay, okay. I just want to make sure. So I was about to mm-hmm. call it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I respect that. Uh, because, okay. because, you know, the quality of voice is hugely important. And, uh, you know, it's like, and if it, you know, I could let all the, the top end roll off of his voice and just, you know, have something haggard and try to mix it later. But that's not what we want to do. We want it. We, the quality of voice has to be there. And, uh, you know, and Will is just, you know, the guy is so over the top and his range is so wide. It's, you know, mm. it's, 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 it's pretty insane. And then, you know, same with Mark. It's like, you know, that guy just bellows and it's so strong, you know. I've just sure. been lucky, you know. Uh, I've got a project I'm working on, which is the totally opposite. And But I embrace it because there's there's a fragility to it where it's almost falling apart. And okay. I think that's uniquely human. And I want to hear that. I relate to it. Sure. Definitely. You know, and I hope I hope when this project comes out that everybody does too. Absolutely. Nice. Well, speaking speaking of records that come out, here's one that didn't come out and I'm hoping somehow some way we may hear it someday, but you you worked on it so maybe you could tell us about it. Deadland Ritual. Sure. Super group. Everybody Deadland was waiting Ritual. for Yeah, everybody was waiting for it and it just fell apart. So is is there a full record and should we even hear it, I guess? You know, this session and you know greg fiddleman brought me onto this and he's another sound city guy and uh you know and he's got a funny sense of humor and you know he gets in the studio and he's blowing his top off and you know it, it but it's like in a tongue-in-cheek way but it was i was it was like my first or second session with him and he, and you know i'm in the studio with geezer butler steve stevens and matt sorum and, you know, and then uh, Frankie would show up later, but I'm like, you know, it, I'm, I was so nervous for some reason. It was so weird <laughs> and out of character for me. It's like my hands were all sweaty and I'm like, and we're doing live takes. Like they're tracking live. There's no click. I'm keeping like, you know, we're changing tempos for different spots and there's, you know, okay, that's a no tempo thing. This is a, a tempo thing. And I'm trying to keep track of these giant massive sessions. And I remember uh so we jumped from one tempo to another and then they're like nah that's not gonna work let's go back to the other one and i spaced and typed in the start time for the the tempo we were not gonna do anymore and we did a whole (laughs) take and i'm like i'd you know because i don't know why i was so nervous uh you know geezer i think and you know (laughs) uh you know so i you know Hey Greg, I need to talk to you. He's like, yeah, what's up? And I, we, you know, we, this is at Henson, you know, you know, it's super expensive, fat, you know, awesome studio. I'm like, look, I don't know why I'm so nervous, but you know, I'm gonna man up. That wasn't the right take. That was the wrong tempo, and I, I apologize. But you know, and he's like, dude, don't worry. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm just like, oh my god, those guys. But yeah, what a fantastic sounding record. I don't, I don't know what happened. But, uh, you know, it was, 
you know, I don't know if they can get a label behind it. Cause I think Matt was funding that one himself. Yeah. Hmm. So that yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I saw that they announced kind of individually. They all said, yeah, that project's pretty much dead. And it's like, well, wait a minute. That's a record. A lot of people would want yeah. to hear. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, know. there's an EP, right? There's the EP came out or is it just two singles? Just two singles. Mm, yeah, yeah there's, the I think there's a couple hit. more. Yeah, I think there's a couple more songs that didn't get released, but yeah, they're out there. Uh, but yeah, that'd be cool. I mean, like you know, I, I mean, God, Steve Stevens, what a play! All those guys, what great players. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know that. Yeah. I mean, they tracked live, and then Steve would just come in and double his guitar. Wow, that's insane. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah he, he's such an underrated guitarist, Steve Stevens. People, you know, you know because he was so. Because he was with Billy Idol, more of a pop, you know, guitarist. People don't realize how good that guy really is. You know, he's yeah, phenomenal. no, I, I was, he was on my radar coming up as, you know, I was a shredder when I was a kid. It was like, you know, Eddie Van Halen was the guy that got me to pick up a guitar, and I'm like, I, whatever that was happening over there, it's like I need to figure that that out and destroy my guitar, and then, <laughs> uh, and then, you know, but you know, then it was Ingbe and everybody else, and Ronnie Latecro and from TNT, and oh, yeah. uh, you know, like. Mm all these, you know, just shredders. And then, you know, then Steve Stevens, I was like, ah, then I got his solo record. And I'm like, God, this guy's fantastic too. And, you know, and Steve Morris and all those guys, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I was just a huge fan, but yeah. And then seeing him in person, just like, Holy smokes. Yeah. Yeah. He rips, man. No doubt. Mm-hmm. Well, Paul, man, you know, we, I mean, sure, we could do this all day long, man. There's so much of you. We'll definitely have to get you back <laughs> on to talk more about, you know, all these Absolutely. great records you worked on. Um, but before we wrap things up here, I just wanted to go ahead. I mean, go ahead and I guess, let the listeners and all those musicians out there know if they want to work with you at, at, at Dave's room and uh, there in you know in North Hollywood. Uh, how could people get in touch with you, and where should they go to sort of just get uh, get in touch with you to you know possibly work with you in the future? Oh yeah, they uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, like uh, my friend Eric Kluber from uh, mm-hmm. he the, the band Iron Iron Knot. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know, and mm-hmm. they're a great example. You know, during that Fireball Ministry record, he's like, you know, hey, my buddy Eric, you know, is look, looking to you know cut some tracks. You know, are you interested? And I'm like, yeah, well, let me hear some stuff. And you know, I heard him. I met with them, and I was like, absolutely. And this is when I this is before Dave's room. I had this little tiny okay. production space at Angel City Drumworks, but. Mm-hmm. I had, you know, a way to record everybody live. And, you know, so uh, those guys would show up and we would set up and, you know, jam it out over a weekend. And they could afford that. And then Mm. they'd come in and Eric would come in for a couple of nights and finish the vocals. Uh, And I don't know if you heard all those EPs, but, you know, Mm -hmm. they didn't spend tens of thousands of dollars on that. It was, you know, way more reasonable. But absolutely, it's like uh, they can reach uh through my website paulfigmusic.com and uh through i have a manager she you know helps and you know i'm always like you know i know it's not the 90s you know and i'm not expecting Mm -hmm. that but you know it's like you know studios do cost money but you know hey Mm -hmm. if a band can you know play their record in 40 minutes (laughs) (laughs) uh, (laughs) you know you know you'd be surprised once once you get set up uh you can have basic tracks for, you know, basic tracks for a song in 40 minutes. You know, you do mm-hmm. the song like three or four or five times, you get your headphones together and all of a sudden everyone's like, they lose their red light fever and you're you're coming to get, you know, the track is really coming together and feeling great. So you do that three songs a day, you can have a, a, a groovy record in three days and then, you know, if sure. they need to go someplace else to cut vocals and because they can't afford to be in the studio, then, you know, then, you know, there's always a way to work around that stuff. Sure. Absolutely, yeah. Well, like right to, to everybody out there, if you know you get a Grammy-nominated engineer right here who you could <laughs> you could work with, so go check out paulfigmusic.com. Um, and yeah, and just quickly, yes, I just want to thank speaking Eric Kluber. Thanks to him for connecting yeah. us to to do this interview with you, Paul. Uh, it's been Absolutely. great, man, picking your brain and and you haven't you know telling us your experiences working with these great artists. And like I said, we'll yeah. definitely uh, have to do this again. Anything else you want to plug out there before we wrap it up, Paul? Uh. No, not yet. The thing I'm working on right now is kind of like, you know, uh, not public yet. So, uh, you know, when we get together next. Okay. There we go. I, ho- I, hope, it's, I hope it's more sooner than later. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Whenever you're free, you're the, you're the busy one. So we're, we're always <laughs> available. So, yeah, we'll be in touch and we'll definitely uh, make that happen. Like I said, there's a couple other 
records I wanted to talk to you about. You know, sure, like I said, sure, this, sure. this goes on forever. But again, Paul, thanks so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely talk to you soon again. Awesome. Thank you, Matt and Chris. Bye.